0: If you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John 4. John 4, there are actually more pew uh, Bibles, if necessary, there should be plenty in each row. And that's page uh, 888. So page 888, if you're using the Bibles in the rows, please follow along. Uh, John 4. I'm going to read the first 26 verses this morning for our text. The woman said to him, "'Sir, give me this water "'so that I will not be thirsty "'or have to come here to draw water.' "'Jesus said to her, "'Go call your husband and come here.' "'The woman answered him, "'I have no husband.' "'Jesus said to her, "'You are right in saying, "'I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, "'and the one you have now is not your husband. "'What you have said is true.' "'The woman said to him, "'Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. "'Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, "'but you say that in Jerusalem is the place "'where people ought to worship.' "'Jesus said to her, "'Woman, believe me, "'the hour is coming when neither on this mountain "'nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. "'You worship what you do not know. "'We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. "'But the hour is coming and is now here "'when the true worshipers will worship the Father "'in spirit and truth. "'For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. "'God is spirit, and those who worship him "'must worship in spirit and truth. "'The woman said to him, "'I know that Messiah is coming. "'He was called Christ.' When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, do open our eyes and our hearts this morning to hear your word, to hear your truth. May it run speedily throughout us into our hearts. Draw us to know you and to see you as you are. We pray for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. When I was in college, uh, I was, for all intents and purposes, well, in many ways, a religious studies minor, uh, along with my very useful political science degree. Uh, And surprisingly, some of the professors that I had uh, were were actually great in the religious studies department, uh, especially for a state school. But there were a few That left uh, really a a lot to be desired uh, in what they taught. And as I took classes, what was mind-boggling to me was the volumes of material and information that some of these professors knew about Scripture and about God and Christianity, but yet they actually didn't know God or delight in Him. Not not even in the slightest. They had studied, they had had worked hard for advanced degrees, they they had advanced in their their, uh, realm of studies, and yet in many ways it hadn't profited them at all. That's something I want to caution us against as we embark into this study. I've called the study and this series, Knowing God, Growing in Doctrine and Devotion. I've done that for a reason, It, it has to be both. We're diving into some some deeper things, things that we don't always think about in regard to God, and and hopefully that's going to yield greater knowledge about God, but for a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify and to enjoy Him. I would count this series actually a bit of a failure if our hearts are not enlarged in love for the greatness of God. Richard Baxter uh, wrote in his work, The Reformed Pastor, these words. He wrote, Many a tailor goes in rags, that makes costly clothes for others. And many a cook scarcely licks his fingers when he has dressed for others the most costly dishes. This, as he put that, he's actually writing as a caution to a pastor against pastors teaching beautiful truths of God, yet not truly relishing, delighting in, or knowing the Lord. And so for us, as you are hopefully going to learn significant and beautiful truths about God as we go through this series... Please do not let it be merely knowledge. Again, pray and ask the Spirit of God to stir your heart and affections that your love for him would grow on account of what you learn, on account of the knowledge that you gain in the midst of this. Now, as we move on then, as a reminder, we are using the Westminster Shorter Catechism question four as, as a basic outline for this series. What is God? God is a spirit infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and as being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Again, I would encourage you, memorize that. You'll, you'll probably get it pretty close by the time we're done with this series, but you can work on it as well. And I echo the words of A.A. A. Hodge, who stated quite simply, this is the best definition of God ever written. And, and you can certainly find others that are more detailed, uh, but the simplicity, the clarity, and the conciseness of what is before you, you will find difficult to better. And yet, in the simplicity, there is so much to explore. Last week, we looked at God as Trinity, moving into questions five and six of the Catechism. Today, we start diving more into question four, and we do so with the first four words. God is a spirit. God is a spirit. Now, as we do this, there's going to be overlap, okay? So, spirit, infinite, and eternal, and you'll see in coming weeks that there's a lot of togetherness in this, okay? But uh, these, these descriptions and attributes, they're going to overlap. They're going to touch on each other. And, and we're, we're likely going to see some of that this morning, but as we continue through the series, I think you'll see it more and more. Now, as far as the outline, it's really simple. Spirit. That's, that's the one point. God is a spirit. Uh, and we're just going to work through the points in that. But we're going to start off by uh, kind of recapping from John 4, okay? So what's going on in this text that I just read? All right, that I think is a car. That was loud. All right, that has nothing to do with this text. So Jesus here went into Galilee. And the text says in verse four, he had to pass through Samaria. Now we have to to be cautious about reading too much into this, but the he had to aspect, um, geographically, this was the way to go. Okay, this was the the most direct route, but many devout Jews would actually walk around Samaria because they didn't like Samaritans. They had no dealings with them. And actually the word that's translated as had to is the same word that's translated quite often as it was necessary. It speaks to divine necessity throughout Scripture that he had to, that it was necessary for him to pass through. So with that as a bit of a frame for this encounter, let's see what happens. So Jesus comes to this town in Samaria He's weary. He's sitting by a well that Jacob had given to the people many years before. It's noon, not quite the time that most people would come to the well. You see, the general practice for women as they went to the well was to go either early in the morning or later in the evening when it was cooler. And then they would also typically go in groups because it was safer if they went with multiple other people at that time. But a woman does come. Does come to the well and Jesus engages with her asking for a drink. Now, Asking for a drink, a, a, a traveler asking for a drink would not be uncommon. But asking a, uh, you know, having a Jewish man talk with the Samaritan, and then a Samaritan woman on top of that was a massive breach of tradition or custom, however you want to put it. And from this, a dialogue ensues between these two. Um, and in this dialogue, Jesus, in, in somewhat of a veiled manner, I mean, he uses the the clear words that he's the living water, but it's veiled and she she doesn't really understand it. In the the process of this conversation, he exposes her need for more than physical water because when he says something about the the living water, she she basically responds, well, can you tell me how to get this so I don't have to keep coming back to this well? I, I, I want more of this. So she doesn't get it. And then he says to her in verse 18, go call your husband and come here. Now, at that point in time, she answers that she has no husband. And Jesus tells her, well, you're right, you've actually had five, and the guy you're with now isn't actually your husband. And that fully exposes her. Now, from this point, the the dialogue shifts a little bit. Uh, She, you know, directs the conversation away from what Jesus just said into more of theory and theology, Now, this may have been a deflection from the sin issue in her life that was just exposed. Or she recognized, well, Jesus is a Jewish prophet, and I've had this nagging question for years, where are we supposed to worship, so I'm just going to ask him. Because he seems to know a whole lot, because he knew that about me. Now, we we do have to be careful because we we can't be sure because the text doesn't tell us why. So, you know, some of this is conjecture and we have to be careful with that. But let's let's go to verse 19. So look at verse 19 and we're going to pick up and reread this section. All right. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So let's look at this question a bit more. Now, it it is helpful to to get a little bit more background information on who the Samaritans were and and actually still are. There are still Samaritans. Uh, Samaritans will still gather on Mount Gerizim to celebrate the Passover. Um, They had a different view on what was considered scripture. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. So what's called the Pentateuch, and they had what was called the Samaritan Pentateuch. And that's all they had. That's all they still have. And even in that, in those first five books, there are some differences between them and the Jewish Hebrew scriptures, or or our scriptures. But what is germane to us today, and with this topic, is that they believed, based on some textual differences, that Mount Gerizim was the place where the temple and the worship should be, whereas the Jews emphasized Jerusalem. So that, that's, that's partly behind our question there. Is, is, like, is it Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans believe that the worship is to be? Or is it in Jerusalem where you Jews say it's supposed to be? And so with that in mind, perhaps I think we can see her question in, in a slightly different light. Or maybe just kind of fleshed out a little bit more. You see, obviously, talking about our sin and confronting our sin is not easy. No one really likes to be exposed. But could she in this question, rather than just deflecting and turning to a theological debate, could she actually be considering that she's been exposed and now she's wondering, okay, so where do I go to deal with that sin? Do I, do I have to go to Gerizim or, or do I have to go to Jerusalem? What do I do about my sin at this point in time? How do I get right with God? Which is it? How do I do this? And Jesus' answer is that it isn't the place. But as one commentator said, it's the attitude of the heart and mind and the obedience to God's truth regarding the object and method of worship is what matters. It is not the where, but the how and the what that is all important. Okay, so it's not the place. It's the object, it's the method of our worship. Jesus is addressing right and spiritual worship with her. He's telling her and us, in a nutshell, that proper worship is through him. Proper worship is through Christ. There is not a a place that is required but a means, and that means is the eternal Son of God who is now in front of her, but it will also be more clearly shown uh, over time when his hour has come at his death, resurrection, and ascension. So then, we must properly worship God. That's, 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 that's much of what this text is pointing to, is proper worship of God, because God is spirit. He is invisible. He's not confined to one place, but he's chosen to reveal himself through the Word made flesh. Could okay, go back to John chapter one, read the first 18 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God, and the Word was with God. The Word became flesh. So it is through Christ is how we are to worship. And we have to know that. And, and, and I think as, as I consider this series, as, as we start into it more and more, I love what one commentator wrote. He said this. He said, proper worship in any age is critically predicated upon adequate and accurate knowledge of the God worshiped. No matter how ceremonially elaborate, emotionally rousing, or sermonically eloquent, worship that is not offered from a proper understanding of who God is falls short. Some of the impetus behind even this series is we want to know more and more of who God is, more and more of Christ, more and more of God, the Trinity. So that being the case... Let's look a little bit more closely as, at God as spirit, and we'll come back to some implications in a bit. The catechism and scripture are speaking to God's essence, to God's nature. It is non-corporeal, okay? That means it doesn't have a body, meaning that there's not a physical or material body. God has no property or matter. He has no weight or mass. He has no parts. He is invisible. First 1 Timothy 1.17 and 6.16 are, are great references for that. So as a spirit, God is immaterial. Listen to, to Luke 24, 36 to 39. This is post-resurrection. It says, And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, the disciples, and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Okay, a spirit is different than human flesh. Humans are composed of parts. We're we're complex and compound creatures. We're not simple, okay? Now, God is simple and spiritual. Now, when theologians, when when I use that term simple in this context, it it does not mean a lack of knowledge or intelligence or, you you know, Simon the simpleton or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about, Simplicity is this, Michael Horton wrote, he said, on the one hand, this means that God is not the sum total of his attributes, but is simultaneously everything that all of the attributes reveal. On the other hand, each of these attributes identifies a different aspect of God's existence and character that cannot be reduced to the others. So it's saying all these attributes, they are who God is. We can't separate them out. You see, humans, we exist with particular attributes. Some of us are athletic or intelligent or quick-witted or short or white or black, or, uh, and, and the list could go on, but God does not have some attributes of godness and not others. He is God. He has all of them. He alone is God. There is none like him. See, God is not composed of his various attributes. His existence is identical with his attributes. God's holiness, love, justice, wisdom, power, truth, omniscience, they are simply who God is. Okay? As a human, listen, I'd still be a human if I weren't six foot three. I'm still a human even though I lack certain qualities that I'd actually like to have. I'm still human that I have some attributes that you don't have and don't have attributes that you have. I'm still human in that. But God would not be God if he did not possess all of his attributes in the simplicity and perfection of his essence. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. God is all of the attributes. There's not not a weight between them. There's not more of this and just a little less of that, and it's kind of balanced out. Now, let's move on a little further here. With God being a spirit, this informs us how God is known. Okay? He's not known by the intellect, primarily, but, but primarily spiritually. And that actually poses a problem for humanity in general. Because in general, humanity is described as spiritually dead. We are spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, one, or you could read Ezekiel 37. A.W. Pink wrote this, he said, "...unless he, unless humanity, man, is born again, supernaturally, brought from death unto life, miraculously translated out of darkness into light, he cannot even see the things of God, still less apprehend them. The Holy Spirit has to shine in our hearts, not intellects, to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ." But even that spiritual knowledge is fragmentary. The regenerated soul has to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So, actually, when I think about this, this speaks to how I could have professors teaching so much in college, so much information about the scriptures about God, but yet not know him. They were still spiritually dead. And so for us, folks, this should provide a a kick in the pants, a a boost, an impetus to pray for our friends, our family, our neighbors, that the Lord would open their eyes, that the Lord would give them spiritual life. And also, as the end of that quote talks about, that we pray for ourselves, that we would continue to grow in, in our hearts, spiritually, in our affections for the Lord, that we'd grow in the grace and knowledge of our God to see him more and more clearly. Now, another aspect of God being spiritual is that sometimes when we think about spiritual, especially this time of year, like we're nearing Halloween, you think of spirits as this kind of out there, kind of impersonal thing or something along those lines. That's not at all the case with God. God is not impersonal in the least. He is very personal. He's He's been in relationship from eternity past as we saw last week, with the Trinity. He's been in relationship within the Trinity, known that personal relationship. Listen to what Robert Raymond wrote about this. He says, the God of the Bible is anything but inert impersonalness. He is the living and active creator, an architect of the universe, beneficent provider of the creature's needs, advocate of the poor and the oppressed, freedom fighter, just judge, empathetic counselor, suffering servant, and triumphant deliverer. That's the God we serve. That's the God we worship, that we are called to glorify and enjoy forever. And that's the kind of God that we can, is a personal God. Now, another consideration that some people have when they hear God is spirit, and then you read through scripture, and you come across language like, God has eyes, or ears, or hands, or feet. How... how, how, how can God be spirit and have no physical matter, no parts, no body, and yet scripture talks about him as having eyes and ears and hands and feet? What are we to do with that? One of the greatest works on um, the nature of God, the doctrine of God, as an old Puritan. Um, it's not even, it wasn't even completed. He, he doesn't even have all of it, and yet it's two very thick volumes called The Existence and Attributes of God uh, by a guy named Stephen Charnock. And in this, he actually addresses this point, I think, with five or six different points. I'm going to look at just a few of them. This first point is that in doing this and using this language, God is actually, um, he does this to reveal himself to us. It is his condescension to our weakness. He write, wrote, God being desirous to make himself known. So even just listen to how he words that. God being desirous to make himself known. There's a God who's taking the initiative with his creatures. So God being desirous to make himself known to man, whom he created for his glory, humbles, as it were, his own nature to such representations as may suit and assist the capacity of the creature. See, he does this. He uses this language in Scripture to assist our understanding of who he is. We cannot rightly conceive of God as spirit we do it's just it's beyond us he is transcendent he is different than us it's it's hard to conceive that so we need this assistance he's doing this to accommodate to our finite knowledge to our finite understanding god is so far transcendent from his creation that he does this in his grace for us to have some understanding of who he is and his works Well, then, as I said, Charnock goes extensively through a number of other reasons, which I'm not going to get into. But one that flows with this, I think, helps us under is just kind of a maybe a bonus point here, a little bit on how to read scripture. We have to understand that these expressions are well; they're called anthropomorphisms. They're they're there, anthro, man. Um, it, it's it's language ascribing attributes of man, but sometimes it's even of animals and others, but they're they're metaphors. They're there to instruct us, And, and people talk about, you know, can you have a literal reading of Scripture? Yes, you can. A literal reading of Scripture is understanding genre, is understanding how something is written. Okay, And he writes this, and he puts it pretty bluntly. He said, "...if we would conceive God to have a body like a man, because he describes himself so, we may conceive him to be like a bird, because he is mentioned with wings, or like a lion or leopard, because he likens himself to them in the acts of his strength and fury. He is called a rock, a horn, fire, to notice strength and wrath. If any be so stupid as to think God to be really such, they would make him not only a man, but worse than a monster." So, Charnock was having none of that, okay? He's basically saying, we have to understand that that's how he's describing himself. He's doing that so that we can understand a little bit more of who he is, so that we can see his, his strength, that, that our God is a rock of refuge, that our God is a strong tower, that the righteous run into it and is safe. So, we don't think he's, he's a rocky tower. It's not how we describe him. Those are metaphors describing who, how God works and how he relates to his people. So, folks, God is God. Okay, God is God, and God is a spirit. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So then, what does it mean? So, some of this, you know, I don't want this to feel like a class. You know, this is not a teaching necessarily. This is this is a sermon, (laughs) and so. The question is, what what does this mean for us that God is a spirit? How does this affect us? How does this order how we relate to God? And this might be one of the the more difficult of these to to work through some of this with. But I think one implication is that we have to see God as he is. Okay? And with that, folks, we cannot rank the attributes of God. Okay? Okay? Let me try and explain that. We cannot say that one is more essential than the other. The reality is God is judge and loving. He's not just loving. Okay. How much has the, the phrase, God is love, been distorted in our day? That by so many has been ranked like way, way, way up here. And God is just and holy is way down here. Let me just put it bluntly. Don't do that. We cannot do that. That's not how God is. He's never loving without being at the same time righteous and holy. Ever. Ever. Yet, all the while, in that too, he's still gracious and merciful. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's wise. He's holy. He's powerful. All of those, all the time, together. They are never separated. He never acts in a way that neglects any of his attributes. There is no time when he is wrathful without being loving. In all of his work, he is utterly self-consistent. He never acts contrary to who he is. So one of the things is, is we must seek to know all of who God is, not just the parts we like. And I know I gave that illustration of kind of what it's like in, in the general world today, but we actually have to turn that in, our, in on ourselves a little bit too. Because we must understand that sometimes we like certain aspects of God for ourselves. But yet we want other aspects of God to be worked out on somebody else. Like, I mean, I like the grace of God. I don't always want the justice of God. But you can have it. (laughs) That's not how it works. Okay, we have to work on that. You, You know... We cannot rank these attributes. We have to understand that, that God, in, in the simplicity of his being, is all at once. And so let us not make that mistake of weighting an attribute of God part of, uh, you know, and, and trying to divide God's essence. You cannot divide God's essence and attributes. Okay, So let's be very careful in doing that. And, and pray and ask, Lord, am I doing that in certain ways? Now, another implication of this relates to the second commandment. So Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And further, Deuteronomy 4, 15 to 18. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Folks, it is a corruption of God to seek to reduce him to some image. It's idolatry. Read Romans 1 and you'll see God giving people over to their idolatries. To worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. God is well beyond what we can conceive. And sometimes we don't like that. We can't handle that otherness. It's, it can be uncomfortable. So we create an image so that we can feel more comfortable and maybe that we can actually control God. It it doesn't work like that. God is not your pet, God is your God and your creator. Let's not make an idol. Let's not make images. Every attempt to create an image simply distorts the true nature of God. The truth we have learned is that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So let's let that reality affect our hearts. Let's let it affect our hearts. This God who is perfect and so beyond what we can fathom actually took the initiative, though, to reveal himself to us. To reveal himself to us through the word. Through the word made flesh. I kept having the... the there's an Andrew Peterson song that keeps running through my head that is the words of Colossians 1. And I'll just read that. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. We don't need to make an image or an idol. Christ is the image of the invisible God, He's the one we are called to worship, He's the means to the Father. In him, he's reconciled the world through his cross. And so we come to him. That is how we worship in spirit and truth. That's how we know our God who is spirit. So let us go to him. Let us trust the one who is our redeemer, the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And let's glorify and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your truth. Again, may we, Lord, some of these things are hard to comprehend, hard to understand, but yet you call us to know you as you are. And you've condescended to us to to give us the means to know you. And so, Lord, please work in us, work in our hearts. Draw us to you. May we be a people, a church, that worship you, our God, in spirit and in truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.